How many of you are in the middle of the Christmas season? How many of you are tired? <laughs> kind of. We're trying to cultivate an atmosphere of honesty in the church, both here and... <laughs> yeah? Tired? Wishing for a little less celebration, maybe? It's an interesting time of year, isn't it? You lament parties. Oh, no, I have to go to this. I have to go celebrate. Oh, how dreadful, you know? Exchange gifts. Oh, <laughs> I get it. I, I understand. If I'm cultivating the atmosphere of honesty, I, I understand. Christmas is a time of great blessing, of great joy, but because we live in a world that has been stained and changed, not forever, but here on earth, permanently on this earth, changed by sorrow and death, you do get tired. I was reading a, something I keep going back to. I discovered it in 2004 when my wife was in the hospital. I was kind of reading desperately at her bedside. had a little stack of Christian books, and I was just kind of aimlessly, worriedly digging through them, hoping to find something that would help me. And I found it in an unlikely place, a leadership textbook, that in about the first 20 pages has a little story from a man you should know if you read Christian devotional literature. You should know the name Andrew Murray. Um, he wrote some amazing books. He was a South African and missionary statesman wrote some deep, deep stuff. He knew Jesus in a way that apparently few modern people do. And he shares in very clear language what he's learned from the Lord. And this little leadership textbook I stumbled across in my moment of need had a story about Andrew Murray who had at that time a chronic debilitating physical ailment. And someone came seeking his help in the house he was staying in in the middle of all this and wanted some help and some encouragement from him. So he sent a little note down to this person saying, I've just written this to encourage myself. Maybe it will help them. And I won't read you the whole prayer another time when it's a more appropriate occasion, but one of the things he prayed for was for the, in his trial and in his pain for the grace to behave like God's child. That gets tiring. That's why you need grace to do it. See, so if we're really disciples, what our church is about is Jesus' last instruction to us was to make disciples. A friend of mine used to say, his last commandment should be our first priority. That's exactly right. And if you're a disciple, that means you're an apprentice. You're a learner. You're becoming less like yourself and more like him. The way you feel, the way you think, the way you act, in all of those dimensions, feelings, thinkings, behavior, you're behaving and acting and feeling and thinking more and more like Jesus and less and less like yourself. You have the grace then to behave like what you are, God's child. And that gets tiresome because I like to behave like me. It comes naturally. I've been doing it all my life. I find it easy to be like me, and I find it very difficult, if I'm being honest, I find it difficult to be like Jesus. 
That's the journey of discipleship. When Jesus invited disciples, he said, if any of you want to come with me, if anyone wants to follow after me, he should take up his, not his curriculum, not his Bible study materials, he should take up his cross and come after me. Now, we've domesticated that phrase, our cross to bear. Someone will say, I have flat feet and that's my cross to bear. No, that's, that's an unfortunate reality in your life. You're probably a <laughs> slow runner, but that's not your cross to bear. I've heard countless men, usually at men's retreats, say something like, my mother-in-law is my cross to bear. <laughs> that's not it either. Let's be clear, a cross in Jesus' time was not a piece of jewelry or an icon of remembrance. It was an instrument of execution. So what Jesus is inviting disciples to do in his own words is to deny themselves, to die to themselves, to be in the process of dying to their way of thinking, feeling, behaving, and acting, and choosing, and adopt his. And there's a transformation there. That's discipleship. That's what our small groups are about. That's what this sermon is about. That's what our personal conversations and friendships and relationships in this church, all of that should be aimed, if we're walking with Jesus, at producing that. But it gets tiring. That's what the book of Hebrews is about that I'm going to take my passage from today. The book of Hebrews, for most contemporary Christians, probably, unfortunately, is a book that is more closed than open. I mean, the title of the book itself tells you you've got a little bit of a mountain to climb if you're going to understand it. It is a book written to Hebrews, in other words, to Jewish believers in the first century. It is chock full of the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. There are word pictures and symbols and images and stories there that if you weren't raised on them in a Jewish home, you would have to read the Old Testament to begin to understand. And the theme of the book of Hebrews to these Jews who have just believed in him, and they were at a huge point in their history, was that Jesus is better. Simple as that. That the old law and the old temple and the old priesthood had been superseded, had been replaced, had been fulfilled by Jesus, and he was simply better. In fact, he was the very best. These Jewish believers had believed that in the first century, but it was getting wearisome for them to keep believing, and that's the reality of being a disciple. There is constant pressure to stop believing and following Jesus. True for them, true for me, true for you. If you're serious about following Jesus, if you're paying attention to him and stay on his shoulder to follow him with your cross wherever he is leading you, it's not going to be easy. There is going to be pushback to stop believing and following him. We encounter it all the time. I've encountered it this week. There were times this week where if I'm just being perfectly honest with you, and it won't surprise anybody who knows me well, I did not behave with the grace of a child of God. I behave like me. At that moment, in my discipleship with Jesus, I said to my master, I got this. 
and I step forward, and now this, I'm going to talk, and I'm going to do this. There's pressure. And if you read the book of Hebrews, it is, incur- it is a book of encouragement by telling him, Jesus is it. He really is the Messiah that we were promised. He really is the one the prophets spoke of. He is our final and great high priest. He is the one that God sent. He is better in every way to everything we experienced before we met him. And if you don't stick with him, there's no hope for you. That's why it says early in the book, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's why it says at the end of the book, that we should put our eyes on Jesus and run with patience, run with endurance the race that is ahead of us. The book of Hebrews, by telling us that Jesus is better, is an encouragement to believers then and now to keep following Jesus. Hebrews 10 says, you have need of endurance. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And there's going to be pressure to stop believing him and stop following him. And every single one of you faced that this week. You faced it at work, you faced it in school, you faced it, most discouragingly of all, inside your own heart. Because as I read the whole book of Hebrews in context, it's constantly going back to two things that produce that pressure. It comes from two sources. First of all, the pressure to stop believing and following Jesus comes, first of all, from the weight of my own sin. I just get tired of being like me and not like him. That's why it says in Hebrews 12 that we should cast aside every weight and the sin which clings so easily to us, the sin which entangles us. Again, atmosphere of honesty. Did you have any spiritual resolutions that you set a little over a year ago that you didn't follow through on in 2014? It gets tiring, doesn't it? It gets discouraging. To people who are really paying attention to Jesus and trying to do what he said and follow him, if they're self-aware and not proud, it can get flat-out discouraging to fall into that same sinful, stupid, selfish thing, whether it's very public or very private and shameful, and say, am I ever going to be any different? Why does this thing keep pulling on me? Why am I so self-condemned? Why can't I see my, why can't I see my worth in Christ? Why am I drawn to these kinds of sexual temptations? Why can't I stop lying? Why can't I stop being fearful? Why can't I stop being angry? To name just a few things. Why am I always comparing my life to somebody else's and wishing that I could trade places with them? Why am I constantly upset and reminded of things that I don't have or I can't be and I have this tug of envy in my heart? And you may not say it because that's a shameful thing to admit. If I said all the envious people stand up, I'd be standing up here by myself. But we live in Orange County. We, we thrive on comparisons. And who's got what and who's what? And the reality of feeling that weight of sin pulling you back, holding you down, resolutions unkept year after year, temptations that seem to dissipate only for a while and then get stronger, that's pressure. And I've known more than one Christian who said, I don't really 
I can't really change. I don't think it's really true. I'm out. Add to that the rejection from other people when you distinctively try to be a disciple of Jesus and you put yourself out there as he's the one that's calling the shots. The Hebrew believers that first read this book, they were getting pushback in a big way. That's why they were told, consider Jesus who endured the hostility of sinners. You haven't yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your own blood. Yes, it's getting tough, but they haven't killed you yet. I mean, that's real talk for real believers in the first century. That's why the book ends with a call to run, not a sprint, but to run patiently, knowing that Jesus has run ahead of you and God has marked out your course. You have need of endurance. And in Hebrews chapter 4, in one of the several pinnacles, high points of this book, We are told how to keep hope alive in this difficult, heartbreaking, three steps forward, two steps back journey of following Jesus. I want you to read it with me. It's on my outline, but please use your Bible because we'll need it at a couple points as well. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and please read with me from the outline so that we can all read the same passage translated the same way. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16. Fair warning, in the first phrase, there's going to be a Hebrew word picture there that some of you won't be familiar with, and you're going to feel like you're on strange ground in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, ready to read? That was a murmur. I don't think one person actually spoke. Yes, okay, good. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Let's read together. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me read that to you one more time. In telling them that Jesus is simply better And in calling them to hang on to their faith, the author of Hebrews said, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What's the answer to all this pressure? God's answer is he gives his son as our high priest. And some of you say, I have no idea what that means. We're not familiar with the concept of the priesthood very much in America. Even if you grew up in a Catholic church and had a priest in a parish as a kid, I wonder if you're familiar with the idea of what a priest does. Because there are 
let's be honest, I'm a pastor. I think I can speak generally in this area of clergy. Priests are, seem like odd characters, right? Strange clothing, collars on backwards. No one's really sure what they do during the week. The same is true of pastors. Had countless people. What do you do for work? I'm a pastor. Yeah, but, but like to, you know, with the rest of your week. Oh. <laughs> it's a Sunday 9 to noon kind of gig, right? That's it. You just go home, chill out for the rest of the week? Yeah. That's what I do. I go home, chill out for the rest of the week. It's great. You should try it. Anyway. See how quickly the disciple uh, says to Jesus, uh, hang on, I got this one. What's a priest? The Hebrew readers, the Jewish readers of this letter would have immediately understood what was being told to them. All their life they had grown up with priests. And one of them was the high priest. And the high point of their year, after a year's worth of sacrifices offered by the priests that served them and led them into God's presence, the high priest, one man, once a year, would go into a place of the temple that only he would see. That was the world-famous Holy of Holies. One man, once a year, with one sacrifice. After offering sacrifices for his own sins, he would go as a living picture of God's grace and in the need to approach God in the way that God told us to approach him, he would go into this place by himself and he would emerge. And the cycle would repeat itself year after year after year. Priests offering sacrifices, the high priest offering one Sacrifice for all the people once a year, he alone in that sacred reserved space that only he and God would be in that one day. The author of Hebrews is talking to Jewish believers who are discouraged. Their own sinfulness and their inability to follow Jesus combined with the social pressure that has pushed them out of the synagogue has maybe cost some of them friendships and family relationships. They're starting to wonder whether it's true and whether it's worth it, just like you might. Is it true and is it worth it? And can I do it? Can I actually follow Jesus? And God's answer is that his own son, whom he sent, put on earth and returned to heaven in our place, he is our high priest. So that, that's really interesting, and that sounded a little bit like a college lecture, but who, who needs a priest anyway? What is a priest? A priest is simply this. If you don't understand the concept, it's actually very simple. A priest is someone who offers sacrifices so that sinful people can be close to a holy God. He's a go-between. He's a bridge. He is the one person who takes hold of a holy God and reaches out his other hand to sinful people who he cannot see himself, and he brings them together. I kind of get that. I get the mediator. I get the go-between. But why do I need that? Let me show you. The verse before. Did you notice when we read it said, therefore? Give you a little Bible reading tip from my Bible college days. One of my teachers used to say, if you ever come across a therefore, you should ask yourself why it's therefore. Okay? 
So let's backtrack one verse. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature, speaking of God, it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's simple to read, but if you take that seriously and you understand that that describes the way God is, that verse will make you sit up straight spiritually. Speaking of God who made the whole world, it says no creature is hidden from his sight. So far, that's easy. Nothing that God has made escapes his sight, escapes his attention. He made it, he sees it. Everybody, I think, understands that. The next part is the part that worries me. But all, all of those creatures, all of those people he has made, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's really graphic language. That's pretty stark. Let me tell you in my own language what that means. God sees every bit of me and you. Nothing is hidden from his holy sight. That means that I'm in trouble because I'm a half-hearted on again, off again, often angry, often fearful, deceptive, Lazy, lustful man. This heart inside of mine, it's not pure, just like yours. All too often, even the good things are shot through with self-interest. Have you noticed that in yourself? That you're doing something good, but you can't help but wonder how it's going to work out in the long run? That this act of love is going to pay off? that they're going to notice, that they're going to care, all of that, the things that are obvious to everybody else, the things that you're, here's how we talk about it, I'm working on it. The things that you're working on, in other words, the things that trip you up, make you stumble, that you know are wrong, that you know are sinful, that you can't quite escape, the things that were on last year's resolution list that got undone, All of that, God sees every bit of it. That's why the language is so graphic, naked and exposed. I mean, who wants to live like that? Who wants every single thought and intention of their heart, their feelings and their behavior, the truth, in other words, about who we are, who wants that known by anybody? Would you like that? Would you like to have a little digital screen implanted on your forehead that told everybody who could read the little screen what your real thoughts of the matter were? Real motives, real emotions? We'd do anything in the world. If we couldn't get that thing off, we'd go live somewhere else where nobody could see it. Here's my point. The Bible, which begins with the truth that God is creator, says that none of the things that God has made are hidden from his sight. But... Everything we are and do, good and bad, are naked and exposed to him. And here's the part that really troubles me. It says at the end of, to the sight of him to whom we must, what? Give account. We'll answer for it. A friend of mine works in aerospace and he told me something stunning that I I wouldn't, I mean, I, I don't think I could work here for one day. Every minute of his professional life is accounted for. He slides a card everywhere he goes. I asked him to go to lunch once, and he said, well, I have 27 minutes. 
that's an oddly specific number. He says, that's how long I have right now for lunch, and I have to account for it. And if I take 35, somebody's going to want to know why. That's in the human realm. This is much more inclusive. This is bad news. Aren't you glad you came to church, by the way? <laughs> Feel better yet? Listen, at this point exactly is why a lot of people say, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to hear about a God if he's like that. But he is. He spoke the universe into existence, and it does not escape his attention. He doesn't wander off the job or take a day off. He doesn't hire a babysitter for the universe for any of his creations and says, watch these for a while. I'm going to go somewhere else. Get some rest. No, he is constantly aware of everything that goes on in every human heart. And because he is holy and he created you for a purpose, you'll answer someday. You'll give an account for every moment, every thought, every feeling. And that's why the passage says we have a priest. Therefore, because God is this way, because nothing escapes his attention, because one day he will call every creature to account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let's not let go of our trust in Jesus. Let's not stop following after Jesus. Let's hold on to our trust in him. Here's why. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. That's stunning and it will upset a few people, I'm sure. There is no category of temptation, no matter how shameful, that you've ever faced and failed in that Jesus didn't face himself. He was tempted in every way, just as we are. Here's the glorious saving truth about Jesus. Yet he did not sin. This priest is different from any other. This priest is different from me. He's not one sinful man joining hands with another. He is the God-man, the one who was actually born the way human babies normally and always are. In an outburst of crying and fear and pain and blood and water followed by sudden joy, he was born that way and he lived a perfectly human life as a man born in a manger living an ordinary existence subject to every human weakness, including up to the point of suffering and hurting and dying. And every day enduring the same temptations that bedevil and ensnare you with this saving difference. He did not sin. So what do we do? We hold on to that priest, and it says in verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with not trembling, not fear, not self-condemnation, not any doubt of how it's going to turn out. Let us... then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Can I tell you about Jesus for a few more minutes? Jesus felt every one of our weaknesses, but he stayed strong. That's good news. My discipleship is not about me being strong. It's about his strength in my place. 
Can I be strong? Can I be courageous? Should I be faithful? Absolutely. Whose strength, courage, and faith will I draw that from? His own. The priest who went into the holy place of God to make a sacrifice, not for his own sins, but for mine. Jesus was enticed by every kind of sin, but he stayed pure. And again, this can be troubling to some people. Because people tend to categorize sins and they say that some things, those are common and those are okay, but there's a few other things. If you ever get into that, if that's ever in your mind, much less in your behavior, in that case, God will have no forgiveness, no mercy for you. No. Jesus was tempted in every way, just in case we're missing it, just in case they're not believing it. He says, tempted in every way, just as we are. All of it. That shameful thing that you wouldn't tell anybody but God it's covered because your high priest stood up to it, faced it, and defeated it his whole life. Tempted as a man, but pure and holy with the very character and nature and person of God. It's, it's indescribably good for you to make that substitution, for you to trade with him. For you to stop trying to make it on your own and accept his gift, his sacrifice, which was offered before God so that you could be loved and accepted by God as he is. That's the good news. That's the point of the Bible. It's not a message of condemnation. It's a message of stern warning that God sees and knows everything and like a just judge will call everyone he ever made to account. But because he knows he's that way, he has provided a priest in your place to cover you. And finally, the point of Christmas, the point of the manger, the point of the birth and his life, which covered every possible scenario in which you could be tempted and in which you have fallen, the point is this, Jesus humbly came among us so that we could confidently go to God for mercy. That's what John's telling us in the beginning of his gospel. John says, as an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. He was actual God and He lived among us as an ordinary human being. Later, He'll write a letter and say, we saw Him, we talked to Him, we even felt Him. He was here. It was real. What was He doing in all that time? He was taking your place and mine. There is nothing you have been tempted with, nothing that you have fallen into that Jesus did not experience and overcome. And one of the questions I thought about this week is something that bothered me when I was in college and first starting to study this stuff. If he was sinless, can he really be tempted? Because the normal understanding, well, it's Jesus. You know, it just doesn't count. He doesn't know what it's like. That's not the that's not what this passage says. So this week I found a beautiful word picture that helped me understand it a little better. Ever been to Laguna via PCH? You're driving along PCH and it's pretty nice, but it's kind of normal Orange County, you know, North Orange County kind of look, not, not spectacular. And then you come to that curve and there are the cliffs and there is the ocean. Oh man. Beautiful. Right? Tourists are hurriedly grabbing their cameras. You're beginning to imagine what those houses cost. See how the comparison thing works? I mean, it's always there. 
And those cliffs are always facing the Pacific Ocean, and they've been battered for longer time than any of us can imagine. Big storms like this blow in, and the cliffs take a beating. And if you go down into that shore break and you look, there's little tiny pebbles scattered all over that beach too, and they are subject to the whim of every single wave. And I've, because I'm easily entertained, I've stood there and watched one little rock roll back and forth with the tide. It's great to be easily amused. It doesn't take much, you know. You can stand there and marvel at a pebble. And that pebble, that's like me when I'm tempted. Something simple, something ordinary can wash into my life and push me back and pull me around and bully me and move me everywhere it pleases with the minimal strength. It didn't take much to make me fall. Jesus is like those cliffs. No matter how big it gets, even if it's a tsunami, it's going to slam into the cliffs full force and the cliffs will stand unchanged, unmoved. They're not pushed back. They're not pulled in. Now here's, if it's not too conceptual for you, here's the question that kind of unlocked this word picture for me. Who can tell you, who could tell you better if they could speak? Who could tell you better of the full strength of the ocean, the pebble or the cliffs? The cliffs. Because they've known it in its full strength and not moved. See, there's certain things for me, I can be tempted in an instant. And I'm right back in the ditch. I'm right in the weeds doing my own thing, not following Jesus that quickly. It didn't even take that much. The temptation was weak and still I fell into it. Not Jesus. He was tempted in every way just as you are. Whether it's quiet and private and seemingly harmless and people tell you you're being too hard on yourself or it's just too deep, too dark, it might even be criminal what's in your heart. He stood to the full strength of the temptation, the allure, the enticement of sin, and remain unmoved, holy, pure, righteous. And then he took all of that, ascended to heaven into God's presence, and went into God's presence, not through a veil, no matter how beautifully woven, created by human hands. He went into the very presence of God and laid it all down for you. So what can you do? You can approach the throne of God with confidence so that in that moment you may receive not judgment but mercy and you may find grace to help you in your time, not of strength, not of perfection, but in your time of need. He's a good high priest. He's the best. And what this means, church, is that if Jesus is yours, you will never be in a place where God's mercy is exhausted and his grace cannot help you. Because he endured every temptation, because he faced every weakness, but without sin, there is nothing you can experience, nothing you can imagine even that Jesus has not faced faithfully with righteousness and purity and justice and truthfulness in your place to then offer that sacrifice to his Father so that you can go to him confidently, not merely as his subject, but as his very own beloved child. As his daughter says, Father, I've blown it again, and I'm sure you don't want to hear from me again. I can't imagine you're still patient. You cannot exhaust his mercy. I cannot imagine you have grace for me. He does because he treats you as if you were his own beloved and only son. He's a good high priest.
This is the message that our church tries to proclaim from this pulpit and tries to portray in our lives. I'll tell you honestly, it's a whole lot easier to proclaim it from right here than to portray it, to live it out in the world. But this is what we, this is what we tell the world, that they have a great high priest who has gone to God to establish a, a throne that will never be for us of judgment or condemnation, that will be a throne of grace, so that from there we may receive mercy and find grace from God to help us in the time that we need it. Could I ask you to pray with me now? If you've been tired, if your discipleship like mine has grown weaker, if you've been tempted and stumbled and fallen, could I invite you to go straight to God's throne of grace and say, Father, give me mercy. Send me grace to help me in my time of need. If you're following Jesus, if Jesus is yours, he's not only waiting, he's not only willing, he's eager. Eager, grateful, overjoyed, celebrating that the great high priest finished his work, sat down at his right hand, and it was all covered. You can go for that. You can trust him. You can tell him right now. And listen, if this is distant and foreign to you and you don't have your, any assurance that this is for you, can I just tell you plainly, he's your only hope. No one else can spare you from that day of accountability but Jesus. Because he's the only one who empathizes with your every weakness and faced your every temptation. But unlike you and me, he did it without sin. I commend him to you. I put him in front of you that you may trust him. Not change religions, not promise to do better, not promise to join a church, but to trust him to say, Jesus, I believe, forgive me. Cover me. I'll take your sacrifice for my sin. If you'll do that and those words are your own, if you'll trust him personally, he'll save you this morning. He did for me. He has for millions and millions of people who will tell you they are not sinless, but they are different. They are forgiven. They understand that grace, not judgment, awaits them. He'll do that for you. Do it now. And all I would ask is that you take that connection card that's in the bulletin, Put it in one of these offering baskets when it goes by you. Let us know that you've trusted Jesus or you're trying to, you want to. We want to come alongside you and invite you to follow him with us. Lord, as people turn to you, may they experience your grace, your love, your acceptance. May they find from you, Lord, mercy. Jesus faced judgment so we can receive mercy. Thank you for that. Thank you. There's nothing I can ever say or do that will exhaust that or change that. Thank you, Jesus, for being our priest. Takes us by one hand and the Father by the other to make us family. We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. 
If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.